right, let's come on back. Grab what you need from the table. Make your way back. We're going to get going. You are just openly defying my orders. You are having too much fun. Grab a treat, grab a cup, find your seat. Maybe grab a Bible, and you can turn to Matthew 4. I don't know if you are excited for the fast, or scared of the fast, or hopeful for the fast, or whatever. Um, a, just a, a, brief, uh, a brief word to consider. Um, there's been tons of studies linking, it's more correlation than causation, linking the ridiculous rates of anxiety and depression among college students in the advent of the iPhone. Um, and so the rates of people who are entering college who are dealing with mental health issues are huge. And again, it's not causation, but it pretty much lines up with people who were born after the iPhone was invented. So I just encourage you, not for your, I mean, maybe for your own mental health, but also as you consider being a model and example to the next generation, whether it's your kids or nephews or people around you, um, how to engage and use and not be slaves to our technology um, there could be huge <laughs> benefits um, outside of your own engagement with Jesus um, to consider. So brief, brief encouragement there, um, but we're going to dive in um, to our passage. Last week, I mentioned um, being new to town and getting to know this place. Well, one thing that we still need help in, we're learning, and I'm driving by places but not totally figuring out, one thing we need help in is where to eat. So we're going to start this morning with the interactive part of the sermon, and I want you to tell me where to eat. Where are your favorite places to eat in town and why? Tell me. I'm going to make mental notes and then make uh, Karis write it down later. But um, tell me, where do, where do you like to eat? Who wants to start? I want to know where I should go. Yes. Don't say Baja Fresh. Somis Market. Somis Market. Okay. Burritos at Somis Market. Noted. Go. Winter. Nicole's Kitchen, okay. <laughs> invite myself over to her house. I have done that. Karis gets so mad when I invite myself to people's houses, but it has happened. What else? Where else should I go? That's it. <laughs> Burritos and Somis, Nicole's Kitchen, yes. So good morning. As a resident since 1968. Oh, yes. Give it to me. I'm ready. Okay. Okay. It's a really good one. And then Chester's for Chinese. Chester's. Old, yeah, Chester's for Chinese is a very old tradition. Love it. Thank you. Awesome. Let's give her a hand. Yes. Pro tips. Yeah. Well, I ask that because a good meal is a sweet pleasure in life. You know, finding a place that just perfectly scratches that itch, you know, is, is so good. And it can be different for each person, but a meal that, that just hits the spot is, again, it's, it's like a high point in life. Now, think with me for a moment. This can be mental, not verbal. But what is the best meal that, that you have ever had? Really try to wrap your mind around that. This is a safer question now than, you know, late in the second service or gathering. But what's the best meal you've ever had? What made it so good? 
And what made that meal so good? Think about it. You know, depending on, on the situation and the context, there can be different reasons that food is, is so satisfying. So on a really hot day, something cold, you know, and icy, or maybe your like, iced coffee or, or salad can be awesome. On a cold day, you want something warm and hot in a bread bowl. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're a surfer and you get out of the water, you know, there's particular things that, that you want to eat when you get out of the water. It's like, oh, that just like hits the spot after a long day when I'm tired and cold. You know, when you're camping or backpacking, if it's hot, I think dog food you know, might be the best meal you've ever had just because you're so tired and cold. You're like, ah, just feed me. You know, anything tastes good in that context. You know, in mod- on the flip side, in modern America, we, we're so affluent and we're so spoiled uh, that we argue over which cuisine is our favorite and people self-identify as foodies uh, because we just have an embarrassing amount of options and it's, they're all so good. But we're talking about eating at the front because our passage uses food as a metaphor for how we can engage with the Bible, with God's word. Let me remind us uh, about where we've been and where we're going. Uh, Four weeks, Kevin got us going with with listen, taking a posture of listening to God. Last week we talked about, oh, I forgot to update that. Last week we talked about what it means to know uh, God in his word and know his word. This week we're talking about delight. Okay, part three, what it means to delight in God and to delight in his word like a good meal. And hear this, as followers of Jesus, okay, we are meant not just to begrudgingly read the Bible out of duty, but to relish it, to delight in it, to feast on it, just like Jesus. Now, we're going to start back in Matthew 4 this morning. I will read verses 1 to 11 but then use it as a launch pad, uh, and we'll look in depth at a few other passages as well. But here's what we're going to see. Three aspects of the Bible this morning, okay? We're going to see satisfaction in the scriptures, the sufficiency of the scriptures, and then delight in the scriptures. That's that's our outline for this morning. So if you're there, Matthew chapter 4. If you're not there, turn there. Uh, We're Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be verses 1 to 11 again this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We ask now that you would speak through your word to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come and 
and, and speak to us what we need to hear and would you soften our hearts and prepare them to receive what you would have for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're gonna dive in with satisfaction. The satisfaction in the Bible. The Bible, to put it simply, satisfies. Okay? Jesus says that the word of God is like bread, which we can eat and live. Okay? The word satisfies. But check out the drama in our passage that sets up this conclusion. Okay? Our passage begins with one of the biggest understatements you can find in Scripture. Okay? It says, Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Okay, huge understatement there. Not famished, not, not starving, but and he was hungry. But Matthew's cueing us into something really key here because it sets up Satan's first temptation. Jesus is hungry. And Satan comes along and tries to exploit Jesus' pressing need, his desire, hunger. I heard a great Tim Keller sermon one time where he pointed out a bit of irony in this passage. He says, think about it. You know, the principal being of supernatural evil is coming to the Messiah, the Son of God. And what does he tempt him with? Bread. Evil bread. No, it's just bread. It's not, he says, it's not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's bread and safety and power. Bread and safety are normal, good things to want. And even power is not that big of a deal to the Son of God. All authority and power would be given to Jesus. So to have, uh, to have and or to, to exercise his power and authority would be as normal to him as eating bread. Now, now check it out. Okay? One of the tactics that Satan uses to tempt Jesus is to play off of his desire. Satan tries to silence the word of God with Jesus' need or his desire. Just don't listen to God. You're hungry. Come on. Now, we need to pay attention to this because similarly, our needs or desires can silence God. Whether it be the tyranny of the urgent crushing our discipline or our sinful longings stopping our ears so we don't hear from God. You know, we may think, I need, I want, and who is God to say don't? Or maybe it's even more subtle. We may think, yeah, 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 I'll get to that God stuff. I'll get to his word, I'll get to obedience, I'll get to following him, but first, I just need to you know, hit a few things on my to-do list, and then I need to run a few errands, and, and then I need to re-watch seven seasons of The Office on Netflix, you know, little things, then I'll get there. Whether it is our work, our success, our families, our sexuality, our desires for a spouse, or maybe desires for a different spouse, whatever it may be, we are tempted to lose sight of God, his will, his timing, and focus on the immediate desire or longing. Now, this is important to see because we try to satisfy our longings with other things. And Jesus turns and says, all those things, they're, they're real. They're not necessarily bad, but they're lesser things. They're lesser than God. And God can truly satisfy. So feed yourself on his word. I like the way that, that John Piper puts it. He says, our problem is not that there's insufficient light shining from the scriptures. Our problem is that we love the darkness. Now look at what Jesus says specifically. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. <clears throat> Jesus says that there is life 
beyond what we can see or feel. Let me say that again. He says there's life beyond the immediate, beyond what we can see or feel. Our desires right now, they're real, but they're not ultimate. Now, when I say that there's life beyond, I don't just mean in eternity, you know, in the new heavens, the new earth. I mean abundant life to be had now in Jesus. Jesus says there is life. There is abundant life. There's a type of life, a flourishing life that can be had right now that is beyond what we can see or feel right in front of us. Now, our desires, they they are real. Okay, he's not saying don't have longings or you shouldn't have physical wants or needs. You know, I love that Matthew includes that he says he was hungry. Okay, lest we think that, that Jesus, you know, floated above the earth, one foot off the ground, untouched by, you know, humanity or by real human experience. No, no, no. Jesus was human. He was hungry. His desire was real. But Jesus is saying that while they're real, our desires are not ultimate. They're not primary. That there is satisfaction possible beyond those things. C.S. Lewis has a great quote in his essay, The Weight of Glory, and it's just, it's so visceral. Hear this. He says, indeed, if we consider the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, because our physical desires or needs, because they are not ultimate, well, then we can participate in things like fasting, where we deprive ourselves of things for a short period of time in order to focus our attention on cultivating spiritual hunger. Fasting from something does not mean that it is evil. It just means that we're, it's not ultimate. And we're going to posture it and say, hey, look, I'm going to demonstrate that it's not ultimate. Now, we're going to look at this in just a moment. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that we should long for the word of God. Peter knows that, that God can satisfy and that his word can satisfy. And he says, long for that. Crave that. Because the word satisfies. Well, it if we try to conceptualize this, we could think that satisfaction, it can apply to both need and desire. You know, if if you're going to satisfy a need, well, it requires something that is up to the task. Okay. To satisfy hunger, the food has to be sufficient. There has to be enough of it. In order to satisfy a desire, it will require something that is good. Not just enough, but, but tasty, (laughs) good. We're going to keep pressing into each of these, and we'll start with the need side of things, with sufficiency. In order for something to be sufficient, it needs to be enough. There has to be enough of it. I am one of five kids, and when we were teenagers, my parents, you know, they had their hands full trying to keep us fed with enough. You know, they rejoiced when Costco moved to town because finally they could buy ridiculous, you know, 10-pound bags of chicken and, you know, all this stuff to try to feed us. 
But in high school, I played water polo, um, and so I ate voraciously. You know, I just had to consume thousands of calories per day. I can remember like a hobbit, you know, eating breakfast and going to school and eating my lunch at 9.30 in the morning. And then when lunch came around, I'm begging for spare change so I can scrounge up enough to buy more food at school. Then after school, I'd go home and eat a full meal, you know, like four chicken burgers or something, and then wait and wait and wait for dinner so I could eat again. I remember coming home one uh, one day after school, it's, it was probably February, and I couldn't find any food that I wanted uh, in the house, but in the back of the cupboard, I was kind of digging around like cans of tomatoes and stuff. In the back of the cupboard, there was an old box of Laura Scudder's stuffing, leftover from Thanksgiving. Okay, a couple months old, just sitting there in the back, and so I looked at the box, and all it needed was an onion and celery and some butter. And I was like, okay, yeah, we can do this. And so I sauteed up the celery and the onions and I followed the directions and I made some stuffing and I ate the whole box. And my mom came home and was like, what in the world just happened? That was like six servings of just like dehydrated bread. What are you doing, you know? But it was hard to get enough. And so I just like shove anything I could into my mouth. Well, to satisfy our spiritual needs, we need something that is sufficient, that is enough. And in our passage, Jesus demonstrates just that in those five little words. Satan tempts, and we read, he answered, it is written. <clears throat> Jesus quotes scripture, not as magical incantations, but as powerful, perspective-shaping truth up to the task of combating temptation. Now, we looked at this last week, but Jesus quotes the word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy in particular, and he reframes the discussion by doing so. He is countering the words of Satan with the words of God that show the bigger picture. See, Satan tries to focus him in on his immediate need or desire, and Jesus says, no, there's more to it than that but he relies on the word to do that because it is sufficient. It is up to the task. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it's often a reference to talk about the inspiration of scripture, but it's also about the sufficiency of scripture. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God, there's your inspiration, and profitable, there's your sufficiency, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now just look at that for a second. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the scriptures are sufficient to bring us to completion in our Christian life? Do we believe in the word of God to do the work of God? Now, some people at this point might object and say, hold on, isn't that the Holy Spirit's job? You know, to sanctify us, to make us, you know, Christ-like? Of course it is. The Spirit of God and the Word of God, they're not at odds any more than a carpenter and a hammer are at odds. If I say that a hammer is sufficient for the work of framing a house, I'm not saying that the carpenter can stay home. No, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit-inspired Word, they go hand in hand. They're inseparable. So the word is sufficient, it is enough. It can satisfy our need, our hunger, and it can help us to grow up into greater Christ-likeness. And the reason this is true, the reason the word is sufficient is because the word of God is powerful. 
So powerful. You know, we know that words are powerful. Think about the power of these human words. Okay, these are just human words, but think about their power. I love you. I hate you. For better or for worse, it's over. It's cancer. It's benign. It's twins. It'll be 500 bucks. I'm sorry. I forgive you. You are mine. Okay, these are powerful human words. But think now of the power of God's word. Okay, he speaks, let there be light. Let my people go. Lazarus, come out. Powerful words, miracle-causing supernatural power you know, that creates the cosmos, that brings a world power, an empire to its knees, that brings a dead guy back to life. So to the paralytic, Jesus said, get up and walk. To the storm, Jesus said, quiet, be still. And to our cold and dead hearts, he says, live. To the weary, he says, come and rest. To the thirsty, he says, drink. To the hungry, he says, eat and be satisfied. God's word is sufficient because God's word is powerful. Now, let me speak personally for a minute. Okay, as someone who's new to this church, is new to the staff, I'm going to be up here teaching a little bit um, and hopefully getting to meet with many of you over coffee or lunch to talk about life and faith and whatnot. But here's the thing. I know that I am insufficient for that task. I am not sufficient. See, I, I could hone my craft and I could, you know, get really good at, at public speaking or one-on-one -on -one counseling. I could learn all the techniques in the world. But at best... I could give, you know, like a great TED talk or become a, a really good therapist, which would be awesome, you know. But I have the conviction that, that I must rely on the sufficiency of the scripture if I'm going to be a part of any lasting life happening around here. I can't climb inside and change your heart and mind. I can't do that. That's not within my power. So my goal is not to, you know, say some awesome things my goal is to point you to the awesome realities God has revealed in his word and let those do the work of bringing about life. Because there, there's a work that only God can do. But in his goodness, he's chosen to use his people, you and me, to accomplish that work. But it's not our ingenuity, it's not our cleverness that's up to the task. No, he has given us his word. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we get to use that word to encourage, to rebuke, to train and correct, to heal and support, and to build one another up. And so Ephesians chapter 4 says we're, we're to speak the truth, God's word, speak it in love. And if we do that, we will build ourselves up in love into Christian maturity. God's word is sufficient. It is enough because God is enough. Now, if you're in your Bible, turn to, to 1 Peter, okay? It's, if you're in Matthew, it's to the right. Keep going through all of the Gospels and Epistles, past Hebrews. If you get to the Johns or Revelation, you've gone too far. Um, 1 Peter, hey, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're there, I'll give you, actually, I'll give you a second. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. You can look at it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God, in his power and his mercy, his love, brought us to life. We were born again through what Jesus did. Now jump down to verse 23. Look down, chapter 1, verse 23. We'll see how he did this. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. All right, did you catch that? God caused us to be born again through the word of God which contains the good news that gets preached. God's word, which remains forever, it, it brings us to life. It causes us to be born again. But check it out. Peter's going to press the metaphor a little further because having been born, he then will call us newborns. So look, at, look down at chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, Peter is reiterating what Jesus has said. We come to live by the word of God and we grow up in life by the word of God. And so we're to crave, we're to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Of the word. But here's incredible news. It's not just bland nourishment. It's not just gruel. No, he says, crave it if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. Okay, it's good. And this brings us to our last point, okay? Delight. We said to satisfy a need, uh, it has to be sufficient. It has to be enough. And to satisfy a desire, well, it, require, it will require something that is good. It should not just be sufficient. It should delight. Now, I want to be careful. I may be stretching Matthew 4 just a bit, but I don't think that it is scripturally unfounded to say that Jesus delights in God. I mentioned last week that, that Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. And so in verse 10, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God. Okay, well, that's Deuteronomy 6. And just a few verses earlier in Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Jesus loves the Father. And his life was one of worship to God the Father. Jesus delights in God and in his word. Now, if you are newer to this church thing, okay, this may be a new idea to you, but those who, who follow Jesus, again, we, we don't just begrudgingly love God. You know, we don't just accept the truth of his reality and power and then get on with serving him, dragging our feet, you know, along the way, trying to, to obey, wishing we didn't have to. Okay, no. When we say that we, we love God, and worship God, we mean that, that he is delightful. That we see in him beauty and goodness. That we long to know him and experience life in him. And that, that serving him brings us joy. And so in 1 John it says, you know, we know that we love when we obey his commandments and his commands are not burdensome. You know, that, that we, can, we can pursue following him and listening to him and it's not just this total drag because there's joy in him. 
And so we can agree with the Psalms when they pray or sing things like this. Psalm 43, 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. God himself is his exceeding joy. Psalm 63, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Better than life. Psalm 70, verse 4, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. You know, those last two are important because look at where the gift leads the psalmist, okay? He says, my lips will praise you. He doesn't say my lips will praise your steadfast love. The steadfast love is better than life and it leads him to God, to praising God. Okay, not the gift, but the giver. Or Psalm 70, the same thing. It says, may those who, who love your salvation say evermore, not your salvation is great, but God is great. Okay, passed through the gift to the giver. The psalmist is delighting in God. And we too, we delight in God. And because we delight in God, we can also delight in his word. And so two weeks ago, Kevin uh, opened for us Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Again, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. The Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. So if you open up to the middle, probably go left a little bit. You'll get to Psalm 19. This is so good. Psalm 19. The psalm begins talking about God's creation, how God's creation actually speaks a little bit. It tells us a bit of the glory of God who made it. So it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But there's this huge turn in verse 7 as the psalmist turns from creation speaking to God's word. His more specific revelation, his special revelation See, the creation, it speaks generally, it speaks universally, it goes out to all the earth. Everyone can see the sun. Everyone can look up and see the stars and, and, and see the, the glory of God's handiwork. But it's maybe a little bit ambiguous, but the law of the Lord, oh, the Bible, it does some amazing things. Look at the verbs, look at the verbs, the action words of verses seven and eight, okay? Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law or the word can do things that creation can't. His word, it revives. It makes wise, it rejoices, it enlightens. These words are salvation words. They're they're about life. They're about flourishing. Because the word of God does the work of God. But it is also so good. The psalmist goes on, look down at verse 10. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Wow. See, where Psalm 1 tells us about the person who delights in the word, Psalm 19 is written by a person who delights in the word. It shows us what delight looks like. Now, we are called, like Jesus and like the psalmist, to delight in the word of God because we delight in God. And we love hearing from him and listening to him, getting to know him. 
But if we're honest, this is not automatic. It's not automatic. We know plenty of people who maybe have read the Bible, and this does not happen. They don't immediately become Psalm 19 types of people. What's going on there? Again, I I like the way that John Piper puts it. It'll be up on the screen. It says, no one merely decides to experience the Christian scriptures as the all-compelling, all-satisfying truth of one's life. Seeing is a gift. And so the free embrace of God's word is a gift. God's spirit opens the eyes of our heart and what was once boring or absurd or foolish or mythical is now self-evidently real. What he's saying, the truth of that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's talking about the Jews and he says, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, a veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And then further on in chapter 4, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. But for those of us who who do see, who delight, it's because God has opened our eyes to see his goodness. So he says, verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, it's not enough for me to stand up here and say that our human needs and desires are secondary. It's not enough to say that we should crave something else. No, we need to actually see it and and to taste it and to love it. And then our delight will actually push out our cravings for other things. To use Lewis's language, it's not enough to say that mud pies in the slum are gross. No, 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 we we have to get a taste of a holiday at the sea. See, we might think of, of, again, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, walking with the disciples, taking them through a Bible study that showed them Jesus in all the scriptures. And what was their response to that Bible study? They reflected back and they said, did not our hearts burn within us? They got a taste. They got a glimpse. They were delighting in the word. Well, I'm going to try something maybe a little risky might bomb, and that's okay, but we're going we're gonna to go for it together. I want us to fill this room with delight. Okay? I want us to take turns. I'm going to ask you to be bold, to, to either from a seated position or stand up, but read it loudly. I want you to read or recite verses or short, really short passages of Scripture that you have delighted in. What's a, what's a, what's a verse, what's, what's a passage that has caused your heart to delight in God? Now, no commentary, no explanation, no sermonette, just a chorus of scripture, okay? My hope is that in witnessing each other delight in God's word, we might get a taste. We might begin to cultivate a longing for ourselves. So again, read, recite, short passage of scripture or verse that has satisfied you, that you have delighted in, that's caused you to delight in God. We'll have several of us do this. You guys ready? I'll I'll get us going, okay? I love this passage. 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Isn't that good? 
I mean, I, I would love to just spend an hour of just reciting scriptures that have satisfied us, that we cause us to delight in God. And my hope is that together, as we hear one another, we are encouraging each other all the more to delight in God and his word. Well, a few of those verses pointed to this. But God's word satisfies, it is sufficient, and we can delight in it only because God has spoken peace to our hearts through his son. See, God's word would actually condemn us. God's word would actually overwhelm and consume us. It would bury us were it not for Jesus dying and being raised for us. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the debt created by our sin so that we could be satisfied in God. His blood was sufficient to pay the penalty of our sins so that we could experience the sufficiency of God's word for our lives. And he tasted not the sweetness of delight, but the bitter cup of God's wrath so that God could delight in us and we could delight in him. The only way we can receive the satisfaction, the sufficiency, and the delight of God's word is by trusting in Christ's satisfaction, his sufficiency, his delight, and by trusting in the powerful words of Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished. Let me pray. Worship team, come on up. God, you are so good. You are so good. And I'm so glad that we get to respond with delight. We get to respond by singing to you and telling of your goodness, telling of your wonders, telling of your love for us. God, thank you for the, for the way of salvation that you have given us Jesus, your son, through whom we can come to know you and begin to feast on your word. Thank you for his teaching. Thank you for his example. But thank you for his life and death and resurrection for us. Would we hear those powerful words and believe those powerful words that in fact our debt has been paid. Life has been opened to us through him. And would we walk in this newness of life rejoicing and delighting in you. Thank you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as is the habit around here, we get an opportunity to respond through worship, singing our praises to God, to respond and and taking of the, the elements, the bread and the wine, which represent and help us to remember and delight and taste Christ's sacrifice for us. So I want to invite you to maybe spend some time confessing the lesser things that you have sought to satisfy you, And turn to God, rejoice in the truths that we're going to sing together, and then delight and rejoice in this meal that helps us delight in Christ. You're invited to respond.